Today I'm talking to Bridget Barry. Bridget coordinates Farming for Nature since its inception in 2018. This wonderful initiative was set up to encourage and inspire farmers that farm or wish to farm more for nature. Prior to this, she was manager of the landscape charity Burrenbio Trust for nine years, biodiversity officer for Clare County Council and a project officer on numerous conservation projects abroad for the previous 10 years in the Amazon, West Africa, and the zoology department in Cambridge. Bridget lives in Kinsale, County Cork. Having lived in the same village in Galway for nine years, we discovered we had a close family connection just as Bridget moved back to Cork. Welcome, Bridget Barry. So hi, Bridget, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks, Mary, for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. You're so welcome. So um, funnily enough, um, we have a family connection, which I only learned about recently in the last couple of years. So Bridget's great-grandfather, Edward, and my great-grandfather, Edward, were in the trenches in World War I together. And they were both in the veterinary corps, but your grandfather was a vet and my grandfather came from a butcher's family. And unfortunately, they were dealing with the horses and they, had, they were a great team together. And um, so my great grandfather died when his two girls were 14 and seven. And he left a little note to Colonel Barry, um, please will you look after the girls? So your great grandfather was really kind and they were in a convent in England, looked after by the nuns who were nice to them. And Colonel Barry used to take them out for weekends, holidays. Um, I heard stories of him sending trunks of clothes. And when they were 18 and they came out of the convent, he helped them find their feet. And he was, he was their guardian and they absolutely loved him. So thanks to him. So that's our <laughs> connection. So, um, yeah, Bridget, I've, I've sort of said a little bit about what you do in the introduction and farming for nature, but let's hear a little bit about you. So how did you become a nature lover? Okay, great, thanks Mary. And I'm delighted to connect with you after a few generations. And funny enough, Mary and I lived down the road from each other and we didn't know that. And now I've moved a few counties away and we finally found out. But anyway, um, just back to your question. I was lucky enough to grow up on a farm about 40 minutes west of Cork City. Um, and, you know, in the, in the 80s, um, you know, I was fourth in the pecking order, I suppose. So there was a lot of freedom attached to growing up on a farm then. It was a beef, sheep and tillage farm at the time. But there was a lot of woodlands, streams. I also, um, you know, lots of places to make little dens and houses. And, you know, so there was a lot of freedom and a lot of time spent in nature. And when I suppose I look back at my childhood, I literally don't remember anything about school or friends or anything all I look back on and is just remember climbing trees going in streams I had a pony so that added to my sense of freedom I suppose and I was allowed to you know gallop around and head off on adventures and um so I was very lucky to have that that kind of childhood and in fact when I finally went to primary school uh, which was only on the edge of the farm where I grew up you know, I was very excited because this is where my older brothers and sisters, they, they went off to this place called school. 
And I just couldn't believe that I had to sit in a classroom and actually not be outside. Uh, and I just remember thinking, this is a bit strange. And to the point that actually I used to bring my dog to school and I had to compromise with my teacher that my dog could sit at the edge of the classroom. And I also used to occasionally bring my pony and tie her up outside because I insisted that they got an education as well. But um, I suppose I had, you know, a really idyllic childhood and albeit a bit feral, if I was to be honest. Um, And I suppose as I went into my teens, like a lot of us as teenage years, you tend to move away from that. And I maybe got a bit lost. And, you know, when I hit 16, I was sent to a school up in Connemara because I had hit all the walls of being a bit lost and had to, they had to find somewhere that might give me a bit more structure. Um, but actually, the wonderful thing about being in a school in Connemara is it's stunning. And there was very little to do in the evenings and the weekends apart from go hiking and jumping in rivers again and stuff. So it reignited, I suppose, that great love for, for landscapes and for nature. And, you know, I, I feel very privileged to have those two strong memories in my, in my childhood. So that moved on to, I suppose, my continued kind of sense of wanting to explore and adventure. And I studied anthropology in Oxford Brooks over in the UK. And, um, and I was very lucky through a chance meeting after my degree, um, in a pub in Peru, I met this chap who said, would you mind going into the Amazon and following primates around, you know, as you do over a pint. So off I went two days later, never been in a rainforest in my life, um, with my tent and my backpack. And I lived out there by myself with uh, 10 Mechiganga Indians for uh, a good while. And I went back and so for over a year and a half, um, or nearly a year and a half, I, I lived in um, just outside Na- Manu Nature Reserve, following Emperor Tamarins, very unprepared, but really loved it. And I suppose when you spend from dawn to dusk following a very small primate, um, you start, and you're in the Amazon, uh, you start to look at all the other amazing things connected to the to the ecosystem, you know, suddenly you're looking at a spider's web, or the tree and, and all the different insects on it. And, you know, I, I, every day I went out by myself and really just was enthralled by all the nature that was around me. Um, I, like I say, was very ill-prepared, wasn't a scientist by any means. And so every night when it started to get dark, I'd find a gap in the trees and I'd know that's where the river was. And I'd with my machete hacked back to my little camp. And, uh, you know, I, I was very lucky to have this experience and never not have a pint with someone random in a pub. You never know where you end up. That's and, an uh, amazing story. And, and you uh, were by yourself. Yeah, so I was by myself. Oh. Uh, occasionally, just because you were on the river, fellow biologists and stuff would stop, um, maybe stay for a couple of days and then move on to their camps. You know, they might have been studying you know, butterflies about two hours away or something like that. But otherwise, no, I lived with these uh, Indians. And what was really interesting about the Mechigengas is that they are polyandrous. So the female has more than one partner. And what's really interesting about that as well is that the emperor tamarins that I was following, um, they were also polyandrous. And, so, you know, not that there's a connection there, but, it, you know, in my head, it was just a very interesting social structure, learning about... Um, you know, humans, uh, like, I suppose I'd done anthropology, so I was really fascinated by 
both the people I was living with and the, and also the uh, the environment I was in. So even though I hadn't studied anything to do with ecology or anything like that, I kind of fell into it. And then from there, I went and worked in the Galapagos uh, for a while. And then I was very lucky when I came back from South America and my time there that I saw a random, a random job posting for uh, following hunters in Equatorial Guinea, and uh, which is a very, very small country in Central West Africa between Gabon and Cameroon. And I thought, sure, why not? You know, <laughs> what else am I going to be doing? Uh, apart from driving tractors on my parents' farm, which was fine. But, you know, I, I was in my early 20s and had a bra now to, to explore uh, a bit more. Um, I had also just, I, I did a postgraduate in primat- primatology as well, uh, back at Oxford Brooks. But I got, uh, yeah, got sent out to Equatorial Guinea and I was there for a, a year as well. And it's a fascinating country culturally because it's under very strict dictatorship by a lovely individual called Obiang, who's at the time was one of the top five worst dictators in the world. And I was one of the only white registered women on the mainland. Um, there was a, a group of nuns who had been left over from colonial times there. And, uh, and it was quite fascinating because I, I spent every day following hunters and how much they hunted, how much they were um, utilizing their landscape for feeding their families, but also their wider community, and then also generating an income. And, you know, it led to, and it just culturally, it's a very fascinating place. They still practice um, a form of cannibalism amongst the older generation, um, sending their people onto a new world. Um, and uh, so um, I suppose it was just a, a very unusual place, but it also kind of it really got me thinking more about people's connections with landscapes. And one of the reasons um, I left there, there was a, there was a coup at the time, and uh, and I remember kind of going, you know, you're doing all this research, and I was very lucky that I was one of the kind of weird ones that would answer an advert on the back of, an, of a piece of envelope sort of thing and head off to Equatorial Guinea. But um, I, it also made me realize, you know, as soon as there's a problem, I'm the first person to head back to the comfort of my parents' farm. And so... From that, I was lucky to work in the zoology department in Cambridge, where I worked for a group called Tropical Biology Association, and their ethos and their drive was to educate African biologists and ecologists so that when things do go wrong in a country, they're not heading, they're not abandoned, and that the research continues and the policy continues and the drive to, you know, make changes and conservation continues and stuff like that. So um, that was a really nice NGO to work for, uh, for five years I was in Cambridge and um but I suppose I hit my early 30s and you know the draw to come back to the the land was there I was lucky that um I saw an advert for biodiversity officer in County Clare never been to County Clare in my life I'm a proper Cork woman apart from my trips up to school in County Galway I didn't really leave Cork <laughs> and uh, so I uh uh, I was very lucky that the individuals in the council in County Clare gave me the job, irrelevant in my lack of knowledge. I had a huge amount of knowledge about primates and I had a huge amount of knowledge about bushmeat trade, uh, but not about uh, what was going on in County Clare. But, um, but actually it was about kind of, again, people, landscapes, educating. And 
it was quite a short contract. And then I moved while I was there. I met a fascinating group of people who had just set up a landscape charity, Ireland's first landscape charity called Burn Beard Trust. And I moved over to that and I ended up managing that for about nine years. And that really opened my eyes up to community driven conservation. I mean, obviously, I tapped into it quite a lot with my travels and whatever, but but actually that, you know, the grassroots push that that's when conservation really works is when the community is driving it. And Burnbier Trust is a fantastic example of that. But it's also a great example of and really ignited my kind of interest in environmental education amongst children and the importance of that, the future generations. Uh, Burnbio have a wonderful EcoBio program, um, conserv- uh, you know, conservation volunteer program. All these things I worked on for about nine years until um, I decided to move back to Cork. And uh, when I did that, um, one of the things that we had been doing at Burnbio is... Um, is working with the the burn uh, conservation program which is a farming program um that brendan dumford runs and he also set up burn Trust. but uh one of the things we've done is we were every year as part of the burn winters weekend we would award farmers for the best farm in the burn you know and so the, the best amount of work they'd done for biodiversity on their land and actually we kind of started to go well could we do this at a national level you know could is there room to kind of find these amazing spokespersons at a national level and bring them forward and as you know spokespersons for nature and to kind of inspire other farmers I mean in the mass movement towards intensification that we are uh, that there are farmers doing an amazing and great work they're still viable economically viable farms but that you know, that they're doing all this great stuff for nature and could we highlight that? That's the farming for nature. And I just have to ask you a few questions before we go on to that, because that really is um, really what we want to hear about. Uh, So two things. What was the pony called and what was the dog called? (laughs) Well, the pony was called Bianca because she was white, very imaginative. And the dog, all our dogs were named after alcohol. I'm not going to say why, but the dog was called Whiskey. Great. (laughs) Uh, I just don't want people to be thinking, you know, lying awake at night, what was that dog called? Um, So, yeah, uh, the Indigenous people, did you pick up any particular pearls of wisdom um, from them or fascinating insights into how we live our life or anything that comes to mind? I think the uh, one of the things that ignited for me was... Uh, in the Amazon anyway, um, ethnobotany. So how they use plants as medicine. And I suppose while it seemed obvious, it was something that had probably been lost in my generation, not my parents' or my grandparents' generation, but had definitely been lost by the time I was growing up. You know, if you were sick, well, in my house, actually, if you were sick, you just got on with it. But if you were generally, if you were sick, you know, there's... um, that you know there's a pharmaceutical drug to sort that and suddenly you're out there and they're kind of making different things out of potions and lotions out of uh you know leaves or whatever it was and that really fascinated me how it that it worked you know that was the it worked you know and of course it worked they've been using it for thousands of years why wouldn't it work and I actually um one of the things I did part-time while I was living in the burn is for five years I studied herbalism because I was still fascinated by that kind of 
well, how does it work in Ireland? Like if it's working elsewhere, uh, you know, and I didn't actually realize there was a whole movement of herbalists and herbalism and, you know, and that people, d- you know, had nettle tea as opposed to an iron supplement or, you know, all these different things. I, I, yeah. and, but I was really interested though in the cultural side of it. That's what really fascinated me is, you know, that what that meant to people. And even when you were speaking to people, especially because I worked a lot with farmers in the, in the burn and still continue obviously to work with farmers, is that kind of, oh yeah, should we use that the whole time for this? Or, you know, and I, I didn't know that or I had forgotten it or just, I suppose my generation was the first generation that, we had moved away from using plants and animal, uh, sorry, not animals, but plants for medicinal purposes. So uh, I hope you're going to write a book about that. I hope you've been taking notes. Um, I mean, yes, it all goes straight out of my brain. Yeah. Put it on your phone. <laughs> <It's> fascinating. <laughs> um, so one funny thing, um, on Monday, the guest for the podcast is Melanie Croce, who runs the Seal Rescue Island. And she had been uh, following primates in New Guinea as well. Okay. Which so it was a few years later, and they were trying to set up ecotourism um, to replace the bushmeat trade. So it ca- it may be a continuation from your project. I'm not too sure, but um, what a fascinating story! That just just fantastic. So, what's your favourite plant or animal? Do you know, Mary? That's actually quite a difficult question to answer because I think that um, that's been like asked what's your favorite child which is your favorite child um but you know and it really depends you know day to day or like it stages in my life obviously there was a huge stage in my life because I studied primatology that primates were um you know at the moment it could be just looking at the bird feeder while having a cup of coffee and then as I mentioned to you I also because I studied herbalism you know suddenly I was looking at plants in such a different way and you know, a nettle became not only a a herb, it became a compost, it became, you know, a plant food for all these animals. So I, I would hate to actually pinpoint one plant or animal because I think as a, as, as someone who looks at all of them in a kind of holistic sense, I tend to think they're all amazing because they're so all interconnected so it's it's probably like having a lot of children in the sense that sometimes you don't like some of them (laughs) or you know or they annoy you or whatever but uh, they might you know sting you or bite you or whatever but um but actually you can see why they're all there and you actually love all of them do you know what I mean um that's a great answer I think you know when I can't answer that well, you, I think you might have answered it because you know when you're in love with someone, you can't stop fitting their name into conversations and you keep talking about nettles. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to say nettles is definitely up there with you at the moment. Yeah, must be today's one. <laughs> today's, today's top, yeah, top yeah. plant or animal. Um, yeah, so have you any spiritual experiences in nature or do you feel spiritually connected to nature? You obviously do, but um, anything you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question because I suppose my husband is very much into meditation and does it most mornings, and he's always trying to get me to meditate. And I I just don't have the brain space or whatever to be that type of person. But what I say to him is like, I'm just going to go for a walk down the headland. I, I, I'm very lucky I live near the sea hmm. and, uh, and there's a, a headland near me. And that kind of sense of the wind blowing in your face is seems to just 
blow all the different worries away and and also kind of in a weird way it allows me to be more creative and I always come back with more ideas for work or for whatever um and with in terms of nature I I feel like I've had kind of nine lives you know there's various stages of my life that I really nature should have taken me as one of its victims <laughs> and uh, the uh you know there was one time I left at dawn to go and study my primates in the Amazon, realized after about a mile I'd forgotten my machete and, you know, the, which was quite crucial to just get through some of the harder undergrowth. And I turned around and there in my foot track, in my footprints were the tracks of a jaguar, which would have been the kind of the main pre- human predator where I was and, and rarely seen. Um, in fact, in my entire time there, I, I think I only saw it once, but it, it its fresh tracks were in my footprints and obviously something distracted it because I would have been, it's, you know, it, it would have probably attacked me from the back and been a prey. And then another time I got lost in the Congo basin, couldn't find my way back to camp. And I was walking for like nine hours and uh, it was getting dark and I just out of nowhere came a forest elephant and I was standing between her and her, her young and, oh, no that's you know a situation again another nine life nine lives that you just think oh dear god or and uh, you know and another one that strikes a member is I was out with a hunter around the same time and he was there with his gun and he was he was about to shoot some primates and you know my job was to measure how much he shot and what he smoked what he carried what he sold to the vendor and and as I was there crouching behind him I looked over into this bush and there was this mother lowland gorilla which are very rare to see at that stage with her young baby and she and I just looked at each other and was like I won't tell him if you don't and I was like I will definitely not tell him and you know and she kept very quiet in the bushes and I I was like you know trying to make sure he didn't turn around and see her because she would have been a prime you know that would have been his meat for a month sort of thing do you know what I mean but also populations of lowland gorillas are very low in that area so, you know, that I kind of had quite a few experiences like that in my, in my 20s, and I was very lucky, uh, lucky to escape some of them as well. And, um, but if you were to say to me a spiritual connection, do you know what? I spent nine years up in the Burren in, in County Clare, where you're based. And sometimes just when you're at the top of a mountain and it's, you know, the sun's going down and the rock changes this color and there's no great kind of things that can get you or you know the you feel quite safe there but also just the colors and suddenly you look around and there's just all these amazing different flowers around you and and I, I don't know I can't explain it but for anyone that has spent time in the burn I think a lot of people agree it really does bust open your heart and your soul and there's there's something about you know when you first look at it it's like really it's just a load of rock but actually when you spend time there there's there's a very strong deep spiritual connection I think people get from from being and spending time in nature and I think the bird in in Ireland is is one of those amazing landscapes that uh, allow people to explore that side of themselves I absolutely agree with that. And it was giving me shivers about the poor mother gorilla. I mean, your stories are truth is stranger than fiction. They're great stories. <laughs> well done. I'm so glad you're still here. <laughs> <Can> we <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so yeah, back to sort of reality. And if you had something that you could suggest for people as a positive action to help nature at the moment, what would you suggest? Well, I work with farmers, but also everyone has a bit of garden or maybe they're in an apartment and they have a bit of, I don't know, a few potted plants or something. But uh, just in particular for people that have a bit of space, just let it go. You don't need all this neatness and tidiness the whole time. You can have spaces that are tidy and neat, especially if you have a garden, that's fair enough, or a farmyard, you want to keep that clean. But I, I just think that nature needs a helping hand at the moment and you know, if you can let your hedgerows just grow a bit more so they keep the berries on later in the autumn, winter, um, that they'll have flowers on in the in the early spring. You know, these are all really important uh, places for um, nature to feed off and to live and, you know, and to survive. And by having these kind of really neat, tidy hedges and, and stuff while they might look like something really pretty from a magazine but they they're just not realistic in terms of if you want to hear those birds at your bird feeder come uh, springtime they're not going to be there if you haven't left them a space in order to build their nests or to feed um so i think that would be uh just kind of looking at no matter how small your own personal ecosystem is around you looking about how you can help it and or enhance it Mm. Uh, that's yeah exactly and going back to the farming for nature um would you like to talk a little bit about that and i was thinking if you had any particular examples of ideas that farmers have had that you thought oh a genius you know that's something that could be replicated um do you want to tell us what farming for nature is and explain a little bit about it yeah so it was kind of set up i suppose the idea is to support farmers that farm with alongside nature but also to encourage other farmers or inspire other farmers to maybe do a little bit for nature on their farms you know and um so we set up the farming for nature ambassador awards so that was kind of finding farmers across ireland who had done exemplary work on their land and that they could use this as a kind of Uh, case studies for other farmers to see so through videos through podcasts we share their stories and you know a lot of these farmers are just incredible spokespersons and they're they come from a wide range of farming systems like you know from poultry to dairy to beef to tillage um, and across loads different land types because obviously if you're a horticulturalist in Wexford you know listening to a sheep farmer up in Mayo might not be um, applicable as much so you know, each year we try and find more and more farmers from different uh, farming systems or land types that can share their stories. And then also we develop resources. Um, so we have various things, uh, you know, peer-to-peer learning. So, I mean, this year has been a strange year for everyone because of COVID, but we have managed to carry out farm walks. We have weekly online Q&A sessions with farmers where other farmers can ask some questions. We have... Uh, like I say, podcasts with videos, we have online resources, so best practice management guides, say on hedgerows, on water courses. So in answer to your question, that's, sorry, your first part of your question is that's what Farming for Nature does, is it's sharing easy to digest resources for other farmers to, to get the, you know, the knowledge they need or quick advice, quick uh, advice quickly on what they can do on their farms for nature, that they can find other farmers to talk to about it. And then you were saying kind of what things have people done? Well, 
it, there's so many different types of systems and farm types. But I think, like I was saying before, a lot of what people can do is obviously hedgerows, a lot, you know, these corridors for wildlife um, are really important across Ireland. And to, you know, I understand that hedgerows along roadsides do have to be managed for, for cars and stuff, but actually hedgerows within your fields could be let go. But also another quick win, win that a lot of farmers are doing and becoming addicted to doing actually is building ponds on their uh, farms and just letting nature take over. And I even did one here. I've got a, a couple of acres here and, uh, and I couldn't believe within a few months I had a pond and on a warm summer's evening, I went out and we counted about 25 different bats flying around and dragonflies and butterflies and, you know, and the amount that was attracted to that and the different bird species are attracted to it. And then we've also had a deer come down to it and, you know, different things like that. And I'm on the edge of an urban area and, you know, that, and I know one farmer, he dug a pond a few years ago and he couldn't believe the amount of wildlife that came to it to the extent he's now done 16 puns on his land because he's just addicted <laughs> to seeing what, uh, what what's coming to the area. So I think there's kind of small win-wins like that. We don't expect everyone to go completely wild and rewild their land or any anything like that, not at all. Sure. Everyone, farmers have to be economically viable like the rest of us. But there's just small things that you can do that you can just leave a corner of your field that you don't need, perhaps you can't, plow anyway because the tractor can't get in there you could just leave it to reseed naturally um you could just leave your hedgerows grow uh, instead of having to maintain them into little box structures that are just a you know a row of sticks basically um you know there might be areas that you could consider digging a pond uh or planting a bit of woodland or planting a bit more of a hedgerow you know thickening out your hedgerow you know there's lots of quick win-wins that you can do and there's lots of resources on farmingfornature.ie that people can find the information if they want. Mm-hmm, great. So how big is your pond and how deep did you have to dig it? <laughs> well, <laughs> our, our pond probably in uh, diameter across is probably about 10 metres. Wow. Um, and then in depth, it's probably about two metres. Yeah, just wow. under two metres. Yeah. Wow. And but it's, you- gra- it's a gradual you kind of do a gradual kind of down to the two meters. Do you know what I mean? It's not a mm-hmm. swimming pool. So you don't do kind of the walls straight down. You kind of do a gradual decline okay. into two meters. Wow. And you, did you line it then? Obviously. No, or, not at all. No, it didn't have to line it. No, actually the, the, we actually got a guy in who does ponds for people. Um, he's a permacultural design person and he just, he compacted it so hard. So it's kind of like uh, our soil is also quite clay-like. So it actually compacted nearly like cement mm. by the time he built it up. So, and then there were natural streams that were running, uh, around, that he kind of redirected it into the pond and there's an overflow stream to lead out of it. Oh, um, great. But amazing the amount of, you know, rose bay willow herb that's come up, uh, yellow irises, like in a very short amount of time, but like we haven't even had it a year and amazing. it's amazing what has turned up in terms of plant life and wildlife um, in that short time. Well done, well done. Um, that is fantastic. So have you got a nature book you'd like to recommend to people? Yeah, do you know what I have to say, Mary? I am, I don't know if I'm a useless reader, but I'm definitely a useless person at remembering the books. Um, so, but one that springs to mind, and it's not that it's my favorite book that I've ever read, but it just, 
it just helped me a bit at that stage in my life. About two years ago on audiobooks, I got Wilding by Isabella Tree. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not that I would follow it as a complete handbook as to what to do with your farm or anything. But what I loved about it is it, was, it had positive outcomes. When you work in conservation, you hear quite a lot about, obviously, the bi, you know, biodiversity crisis, the climate crisis, you know, what the future may look like for our children and our grandchildren if we don't change things. Like, you know, that's the, the constant narrative that's coming across to me as a person who works in conservation. And to finally just listen to a book that's like, we can do something. And nature does return and it's there's a positive outcome here if you can do something so I think also at that stage of my life I had a very young child and I the only time I ever had any free time I was either driving on the road for a meeting or and I'd stick on my audiobook so it was actually a sense of it also represented for me at the time a sense of freedom and peace and time for myself and to listen to someone talking about in her dulcet tones about you know ragwort or the butterflies or whatever it was you know the beavers and stuff so it's um as a book it it just gave me a sense of uh hope for conservation and uh, so I yeah that's the one that was coming to mind and getting books on audiobooks as well I found for me quite useful just because I don't necessarily have the time to read but I have maybe have a bit more time listening to podcasts or uh, you know or an audiobook when I'm on the road and you know it's a nice time to kind of catch up on a chapter here and there. Yeah that is a beautiful book and you know I totally agree about that this is why this podcast is Nature Magic a positive voice for nature from Ireland so what I'm trying to get out of everybody is positive actions that we can do so we don't all bury our heads and go get overwhelmed by the crisis exactly so if you had a magic wand what would you do for the planet today yeah and um, I suppose through the work I do I would love every farmer to wake up in the morning and go do you know what I can be you know commercially viable but I can have frogs in my pond and I can still have birds in my hedgerows and irises on my watercourses and you know let's just do it how can I do little things to make that happen um, oh God, can I have two ones? <laughs> yes, you can have two ones. You can have two, two magic spells. <laughs> I can have two magic spells. Uh, the other thing is, because I live by the sea, um, the, the thing that sometimes, uh, I, after high tide, you know, and the tide's gone out, the amount of rubbish mm. that's everywhere on every beach. And, you know, I, I was very lucky to grow up near the coast and I just don't remember it in my childhood, that kind of you know, the, uh, just the amount of rubbish. I'd love to just clean out the seas of all the rubbish because while on the land, I feel that there's kind of, there are you know, a lot of people kind of going, okay, let's do something, let's do something. There's just so much being thrown into the sea and it's coming up onto our coastlines. And I'd love to just give the sea a helping hand as well from, well, the big plastic that's yeah. choking I- the environment there. Thank you. Yeah, it is. I often wish that plastic suddenly got a great value and everybody would rush around collecting it up like gold. So hopefully that might happen. Um, But that's it's been an absolutely brilliant chat and so exciting all your adventures and everything. Um, I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) 
Well, thanks for inviting me, Mary. No, it's great. Jaguars, jaguars, elephants, gorillas, um, nettles, everything. It's all about the nettles. It's, it's all, all about, about the nettles. nettles. Yeah, you can't stop about the nettles. Nettle Brilliant. tea, everybody. Yeah, exactly. Do it. It's good for you. Um, wait till they come want... out in March. Huh? Wait, wait till March. Till they... Yeah, wait till they come out. Yes. Wait till they come out in March. So, do you want to tell everyone again how they can connect with you or the Farming for Nature or anything else that you want to point them towards? Yeah, absolutely. So, Farming for Nature, if you want any resources or listen to our podcasts or look at our videos or any of that, just go to farmingfornature.ie and follow us on any of the kind of main social media uh, things, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We have a YouTube uh, channel and we have the iTunes channel uh, or Spotify. And then um, by all means, if you have any queries for me, um, info at farmingfornature.ie, you'll find me there. I work four mornings a week and um, yeah, and keep up the good work everyone and there's you know there's a there's a positive future for us all I feel and uh oh that's that's a brilliant point to make I think um to end on and thank you so much uh for my kind of relative (laughs) (laughs) brilliant yeah it's lovely reconnecting with you again it is really lovely and thank you to your great-grandfather thank you for listening to nature magic a positive voice for nature my name is Mary Birmingham It has been so rewarding starting this podcast in 2020. Since April, we have heard the stories of many inspiring women and men, some in the public eye and some working away behind the scenes, giving Mother Nature a helping hand. Our earlier guests, including the lifelong nature activist Jonathan Porritch, featured in the Nature Magic book, which is out in print now. The feedback has been wonderful, so I'm going to read out a few reviews and I will be reading an excerpt from the book as the final Nature Magic podcast for 2020. From Tina in Ireland. I love how jam-packed and practical this book is. From Mary Bart in the UK. Inspiring, insightful and motivating. Well-written, a gently flowing, easy read. Indie Girl in the US. An amazing book for any animal and nature lover. Love this book. Brett in the US. This book is especially good for educators. Chris in the US. A visual and heartwarming account of falling in love with nature. Amazon customer. This book is a true gem. It should be the guide for every nature centre and teacher out there. So it's lovely to get so many lovely reviews. The idea behind the book was to share all that we've learned at our nature sanctuary over the last seven years. So anyone can easily replicate some of our ideas to engage people with nature without reinventing the wheel. Check out the Borough Nature Sanctuary at www.boroughnaturesanctuary.ie and feel free to email me at mary at boroughnaturesanctuary.ie. Find all the details for Bridget Barry in the show notes and if you have any questions or suggestions, please get in touch. Thanks for listening.